In the book of Proverbs, there is an interesting prayer that is both interesting and a little bit unsettling. We oftentimes think of prayer as an opportunity that we have to come before God and ask Him to grant us something. But in this particular prayer, the person praying is asking God not to give him something. This person is a man named Augur, and this is what he said. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. That's the first request. And here's the second. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Have you ever seen this prayer before? God, give me neither poverty nor riches. And then he lists the reasons why. I want to pose this question to you this morning. We can imagine how poverty can be a trying circumstance, but have you ever thought about how wealth and affluence can be a trial? If you've studied at all the teachings of Jesus, you know that Jesus was continually talking about the issue of money and wealth because he knew the grab that it could have on our hearts and what it could do to us. In fact, Jesus one time said this, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus knows that you and I are likely to define our lives in terms of the abundance of possessions that we have. And he says life is not found there. That is not how you define life. So be on your guard against all kinds of greed. So I want to call our study today The Trials of Poverty and Wealth as we dial into those verses that James is talking about in verses 9 through 12 as he talks about that issue of people being poor, people being rich, and and what that does to us or what it has the potential to do with us, especially if the gospel of Jesus is working in our life. And so James opened up, just for a quick review, by telling these early followers of Jesus, remember these were the, the early followers of Jesus in that first church in Jerusalem who had believed the good news about Jesus, his life, death, and his resurrection, and they had gone all in and following him. And this intense persecution broke out in Jerusalem so that the believers were scattered, and many of them are having to start life all over from scratch. And so James comes to them and says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now James is not saying enjoy the trial. He knows uh, trials are very often unpleasant. But he wants us to count or to think or, or to reckon something joyful. And that is God is at work and he's testing our faith and he's doing it to produce steadfastness. To put it another way, God is calling us to respond to the trials of life with our minds engaged, which is so helpful because usually we respond to trials just with our hearts going everywhere, right? Feeling all kinds of emotions. So in the midst of that, James wants us to think in a certain way, and he spells it out for us. We will encounter trials, and we are called to respond to them in a certain way, and when we do so, it works a stamina in us, a spiritual stamina that leads to spiritual maturity. We become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And James knows that we lack a lot of things in life. And so he says in these first opening verses, if you need wisdom when you face trials, ask it from God because he gives generously. And as we saw last week, it literally reads the constantly giving God. He gives to all, not those spiritually mature, but spiritually immature. People who have great faith and people who are struggling with their faith. And he gives without reproach has that idea of 
of he gives without grinding us in his teeth, which is so helpful. God doesn't chew us out when we come saying, Lord, I'm, I'm needy. I need wisdom. I need to understand how to handle this life. And so James in verse 9 is still in that theme of trials. So a lot of people, when they read the book of James, think he shifts gears here, but he doesn't. He's still thinking on those lines of the trials. And so he says in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother, let the lowly sister boast in their exaltation. What does he mean by that? Well, this phrase is, is translated in another version, the brother of humble circumstances. And I think that's a legitimate interpretation, especially as James contrasts this person with, with a rich brother. According to the world, to be poor is to be a nobody. If you think about it, we're constantly comparing ourselves. We notice those who maybe don't have as much money or possessions as we do, and we tend to, to look down if we're honest with ourselves. And we compare ourselves to people who have more than us, and we tend to, to become ungrateful for what we have. In fact, it's easy, especially in our Instagram society, to, to look on social media and see other people's kind of highlight reels of what's going on in their life, what they've accumulated, their latest vacation, and to think to ourselves, if only, if only I had that. If only I had that new car, if only I had that, that new spouse, if only I had that, that new vacation, if only I had that, we could fill it out there. Those of us who follow Jesus Christ and who have done so for many years are not immune to the if-only syndrome. But we need to be careful because the scripture talks about people who are full of envy. And certainly you can be that when you're rich, but you can also be that when you're poor. So James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What is he talking about here? James, being a person steeped in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, knows that the scriptures are something that you're supposed to kind of chew on and meditate and reflect upon. He's in that same vein as he's dishing out wisdom. And he wants us to reflect on what he's saying here. Let the lowly brother, let the lowly sister, boast in his or her exaltation. What does he mean by that? As we reflect on this, we dial in on that phrase, brother, which in the original language is an inclusive term, brother, sister, boast in his exaltation. This is the person who, by faith in Jesus, is now adopted into God's family. Let that person boast in their exaltation. The world's looking at them saying they're a nobody, but James says, I want you to look at yourself and realize you are a somebody. Why is that? We compare scripture to scripture, and we look at what the apostle John said in his uh, gospel. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Since people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have been granted this special relationship with God, to be able to call upon him as a father and to think of themselves as children of God. The Apostle Paul likewise says this, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that term Abba is just a, a term of endearment. Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, get this, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, along with Christ, are going to inherit everything. In fact, John will put it like this in his first letter. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. Not just when we die and go to heaven. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet, been, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that is Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to belong to Christ. And Jesus is going to inherit this world. His kingdom will come and everything will be the way it's supposed to be. Jesus speaks of that as the new creation. And if we're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be a part of that new creation and heirs to that. So when James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, he means for the lowly brother to remember everything that is theirs by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just simply to remember that. But what word does he use here? It's boast, right? If we can just geek out on the original language for a moment, that word boast means to glory in or to rejoice or to exult in a person or a thing. So James says, I want you to boast, to exult, to glory in your exaltation. One commentator put it like this. This is, um, I just want to blank on his name. John Stott, thank you very much. (laughs) It's hard doing what I'm doing. John Stott said that word boast in the original. It means to boast in, glory in, trust in, rejoice in, revel in, live for. The object of our boast or glory fills our our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our, our obsession. It's the same word that Paul uses when he says, but as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the cross being just short hand for for everything that Jesus has done for us. In fact, if we were to take John Stott's uh, summary and put it into what Paul just said there, it looks something like this. Far be it from me to glory in or to trust in, revel in, live for, be obsessed with anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which to a first century listener, that would just be bizarre. How do you boast in an execution device? But, of course, that execution device for the believer, where Jesus suffered and died for us, becomes the gateway for us to eternal life. Sam Alberry helps us think about what James is getting at here in his commentary on that book. He said, The message of the gospel to even the poorest and most destitute Christian is that in Christ you are a somebody. However materially lacking life might be, James says the poor believers are to consider their high position. This is what the gospel has given to them. Spiritually, James tells them, you have it made. There is an incredible inheritance to look forward to. All that the Father has for his Son has been extended to those who are in Christ. If we get this in our minds, this begins to transform us and to work in us and to anchor us in ways that wealth can never do. The Apostle Paul will put it like this. So let no one boast in men. This congregation of believers was tempted to boast in their favorite teacher, their favorite leader. And the reason they're not to do that, he says, is for all things are yours, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. So that's what James is getting at there. James tells the poor believers to boast in their high position. 
But now James is going to turn his attention to the rich believer, the one that everybody would say is a somebody because of their wealth. Let's see what James says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich, not in his exaltation, but in his what? In his humiliation. James says the rich should boast in their humiliation. We're going to unpack that, but let me give a negative example. And I've used this with you before. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, wealthy New Yorker. Um, there's a headline in a, a, a magazine, and it said, Michael Bloomberg, colon, I have earned my place in heaven. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to go see what he says about this. And in this article, he says, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. And the context of this is because he had donated something like $50 million to a gun control act. And he said, this basically buys me my ticket into heaven. What is he doing? To put it in the words of James. He's boasting, but not in his humiliation, but in his wealth. And what his wealth he thinks can, can do for him. But if only he would listen to Jesus we talked about the deceitfulness of riches. Riches can't buy you heaven. They can buy you a lot of things, but they can't buy you favor with God. There's this time when this rich young man comes to Jesus. Jesus has been teaching, and he comes to him, and this is the way that Mark tells it in his gospel. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus basically doesn't, at this point, tell him to believe in me for eternal life. He kind of points them back to the Torah, the law. He says, You know what the law requires of you. You know the kind of human being that God wants you to be. And this man says, to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What was Jesus doing here with this encounter with this rich young man? He was placing his finger on the one thing that was most important to him and told him to leave it behind and come follow me. And this man couldn't do it. We're told he had great possessions. God, eternal life, my possessions. To him, this is what had hold of his heart. Jesus would say elsewhere, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's not some preacher on TV who's trying to get you to give them money, send you something in return for that. This is Jesus himself shooting straight with you and me. You cannot serve God and money. So back to James. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his Humiliation, boast in his humiliation. What is James meaning by this? 
again, that notion is found in, in the brother, the person who is a follower of Jesus, who is a part of the family of God. Let that person boast in his humiliation. Again, Sam Albury is helpful in his commentary. He says, The gospel contradicts the assessment of the world around us. For the rich Christian, no matter how much wealth they have and how great they're standing in the eyes of the world, the gospel is deeply and irreversibly humbling. They have had to acknowledge before God that however rich they are materially, they are utterly bankrupt spiritually. They are only a Christian because God has been generous, not because of their own achievements or accumulations. Spiritually, they have what they have because God has shown them grace. They needed a spiritual handout. They've come to God for charity. In other words, the rich person was not boasting like Michael Bloomberg was in his wealth, but rather in his humiliation. The fact that he could not buy eternal life from God. It must come to him as, as a free gift. The Apostle Peter, in writing to some Christians who were suffering persecution as well, said, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, Michael Bloomberg, for the, from the empty away of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. <laughs> the blood of Jesus, so precious, so valuable, without cost, is what redeems us, not what our hands can do. So that's why the Christian can sing that song, It Is Well With My Soul, that has the line, Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. That's how the rich brother boasts in his humiliation, that he has been brought low to understand that his sins have separated him from God and he must receive grace. And so when we look back at James, it's interesting the way that different translations will put this. The New American Standard Bible, for example, translates this phrase, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Or the New International Version, the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Or the New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase, those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. And they need to boast in this because, James goes on and tells us, the rich, like a flower of the grass, will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. James wants the rich brother to have this image in their mind that however glorious they may be right now because of their wealth and all the accumulation of toys around them, they too, one day, will perish. Just like a, a flower that blossoms up and shows its beauty for a moment and then withers away. And James says in verse 11, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Some commentators, some commentators translate it like this. The, the rich man will fade away in the midst of their business ventures. So there's this story that Jesus told. That verse that I quoted a while ago, I'm going to pull it back up here because it's now in the context of what Jesus said in the story. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. If you're not sure what that word covetousness is, it just means simply wanting more. Seeing what other people have and saying, I want that for myself. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus then goes and tells a, a parable, a, a story that's meant to, to illuminate a spiritual truth. And Jesus said, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then Jesus says, so it is. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus says there's a way you can be rich towards this world and just accumulate more and more and more. And there's a way that you can be rich toward God. You've heard that phrase, said, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, and that's true. I saw this picture of not a U-Haul behind a hearse, but a hearse loaded up with, with goods. And I'm not sure there's, there's like a, a trophy deer there and you know, the surfboard and various things. That, what are they doing with this? I'm not sure. Because <clears throat> when we die, we leave it all behind. You can't take it with you. Jesus would put it like this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And James, I'm sure if he could comment on this particular saying of Jesus, would say, this is exactly what I'm going at there. The brother who is rich, the sister who is rich, ought to boast in their humiliation and that this world, with all its riches, does not have its claws in me. So James has said to the poor believers, you are to boast in your high position, how the gospel exalts you. And the rich are to boast in their low position and how the gospel humbles them. And then James says this in verse 12. Blessed is the man who who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James is encouraging you and me to remain steadfast under trials, whatever those trials might be, and even in trials of poverty and in wealth. Because when we stood that test, we'll receive what James calls here the crown of life. The background to this phrase, the crown of life, is the Olympic crown, which is made of, of laurel leaves. They were called living crowns. But the problem with those crowns is that they would fade. And they're no longer connected to the soil and the earth, and so they would, they would wither. But in contrast, believers are given a living crown that does not fade away or does not perish. That's, that's the guarantee. So let me bring this all to a very sharp point and ask this question. So how would you do if God were to test you with poverty or with wealth? How would you handle that? What would come out of you? What would your life be like? What would be your thoughts? What would be your your way of relating to other people? Many of us, at various points in life, will be tested just on this very issue. We may have a lot of wealth, and we could lose it, as many people have lost. We could have periods of of poverty, and then we come into money. Peter, the apostle, tells the same group of believers we were reading a while ago these words. He says, For a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory. 
So what if God were to test you with wealth? What would that result in? What if he were to test you with poverty? What would that result in in your life? Let me ask the question this way. If you were to lose everything, how would you handle it? There's a story of a man in the Old Testament by the name of Job who lost everything. He was a righteous man, blameless. He had wealth, and just a series of tragedies took it all away from him. He lost family members. He lost investments. He lost his property. And when Job received these words, we're told that he arose and tore his robe, which is a sign of grief, shaved his head, which is a sign of grieving, and he fell on the ground and what? Worshipped. Here was a man who had been tested with his wealth and was passing that test. Now he's being tested with poverty. And he falls to his face and worships. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do we normally think that way? Oh, sure, if, if we come into some money, we might say, thank you, Lord, for this blessing. But what if we don't come into money, but we come into poverty? Would we instinctively say, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's trial deepened, and his body was covered in these, these sores, these boils, so that he would take pottery and scrape them. And his wife, upon seeing this, said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. <laughs> She's not handling this trial very well. <laughs> She's angry at everything that has happened. She's not blessing the name of the Lord. But Job responded to her and said, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good from God? Uh, I'm sorry. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? Job, at least initially in this trial, has started well. He's recognized that God is sovereign over everything and that they've had the season of blessing and now they're having the season of unbelievable trial. But instead of saying God has fallen off his throne or instead of cursing God, tempting God to strike him down dead, he just says, look, I'm going to accept this from the Lord. Let me ask you this question. What if adversity is the one thing that would jumpstart your relationship with God? Would you welcome the trial? If it meant losing everything, did you hold dear? And God took you through those fires. Would you welcome that if that brought you closer to God? Being a pastor for a number of years, I've had the privilege of talking to people about their lives. And one of the things that's always been encouraging to me is to talk to people who've gone through really hard times. And they would say to me, you know, I, I wouldn't want to go through that again, but the Lord has taught me so much. I couldn't see how God was with me at that moment, but looking back, I could trace his hand through it all. Sometimes we can see clearly once we're out of that trial. Sometimes we still have questions. But again, what if adversity were the one thing that would jumpstart your relationship with God, which would bring you into a new level of intimacy and trust with him? Would you welcome it? As I was preparing for this study this week, I remember that old group, Jars of Clay. Does anyone remember that? They were big, I guess, in the early 2000s. And they had this song, Worlds Apart. And I remember listening to this song 
And hearing what they're saying, I'm like, they're crazy. Like, why would you pray something like this? And it starts out like this. Did you really have to die for me? All I am for all you are. What I need and what I believe are worlds apart. And I pray, and I'll tell you what he prays here in a minute. But he's, he's wrestling with this idea that was it really necessary for, for God to die for him? And there's a sense in which he wants to give himself fully back to the Lord Jesus Christ in this. But he, he realizes that what he believes, what he needs in this moment are worlds apart. And then it goes into this line here. To love you, take my world apart. To need you, I am on my knees. To love you, take my world apart. To need you, broken on my knees. Here these poets are saying, Lord, to love you more, I need you to take my world apart. All that I hold dear, all that I trust in, all my toys that surround me, take it apart. That's a pretty bold prayer, isn't it? There's this place in the Old Testament when Moses has led these um, liberated slaves to the promised land. And as they're about to enter it, he has some final words of instructions. And one of the things he says is this. You shall remember the way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years. They were in the wilderness for a long time. These 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. Part of what Moses said that God was doing in their life during this extended period of testing was to, to see what was in them, what would come out of them if they went through some difficult trials. So let me ask the question the other way. What if God were to test you by making you wealthy? I think most of us would be like, yes, please. <laughs> I'd like to try that trial out, see how that fits. Before I go on, let me just throw this up. This is a wealth calculator at givingwhatwecan.org. You can go in there and you can punch in your income. So, for example, a single person who makes $35,000 a year is among the richest 3.5% of the global population. That means you're richer than 96.5% of people walking this planet at making just $35,000 a year. Your income is more than 12.4 times the global median. So I say that because I think, in some ways, God has blessed us with wealth. Again, Moses, talking to those Israelites about to enter that promised land, goes on and says this, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Moses, I mean, speaking to people who are in the wilderness for a long time, facing scarcity and adversity, are going to be all of a sudden blessed with more than they can handle. And then Moses says this, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you this day. Lest, when you have eaten and are full, and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then 
your heart will be lifted up. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says this, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and might and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Isn't that fascinating? Here Moses wants this people that he's been with for the last 40 years who are about to go into the promised land and are about to have more blessings than they've ever seen in their life. He's warning them, saying, be careful. Be careful with these blessings. Because what can happen is you can become deceived by wealth. And you can actually begin to believe God had nothing to do with this in your life. That it was all because of how smart you were with money. The Apostle Paul would write some New Testament believers these words. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For, he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. James doesn't say that, or I'm sorry here, Paul does not say that wealth and money is evil, but what is? The love of money. He says here, even some believers began to crave money and have so pierced themselves and wandered away from the faith. So back to that original prayer that we began our service with. It's looking like a lot of wisdom is in this, isn't it? Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me, far from me falsehood and lying and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. My friends, you may be gifted tried with wealth. You may be gifted or tried with poverty. How will you handle that? James is concerned that you would be able to boast in your exaltation when you experience poverty. And when you're wealthy, to be able to boast in your humiliation. Let me just finish this by pointing us back to the Lord Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of heaven, came to this world, and he has owed everything, all wealth and honor and glory and blessing. And though he was rich, he became poor, to the point where he was stripped naked and nailed to a cross. And there, the sins of people like you and me were laid upon him. And there God condemned our sin in his flesh. And Jesus descended even further than that to the grave for three nights. But on that third day, he rose again from the dead and is exalted, the King of heaven. And he will receive all glory and honor and blessing. And because of what Christ has done for people like you and me, we will believe in him and seek to follow him. We become these new human beings who are rich. You might say, well, I'm, I'm poor. But you can boast in your... Your, your exaltation. And if you're 
speaking rich, at least making 35000 a year, you can boast in your humiliation, seeing what Christ had to do to redeem your soul. My friends, whatever the days hold before you when it comes to money, possessions, may you handle those trials well. And may God work in us that which is pleasing in the sight.